Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. And sitting next to me, as always, with a really enigmatic smile on his face, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. <laughs> I was having a Mona Lisa moment. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know, the vacuum tubes are all uh, humming and everything is ready to go. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have to start this this podcast off a very specific way. We do? Yes, with listener mail. I swear you moved that on purpose. Always. So today's listener mail comes from Jason from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Jason says, hey, guys, I was having a conversation about computer technology the other day, and the people I was talking to mentioned something about old computers where you had to carry around a box of punch cards that served as the program. However, if you happened to drop the box and got them out of order, you essentially lost your program. I'm only 21 and was wondering if this technology was a bit before my time because I don't remember a thing about it. I love hearing about these older technologies and how they work and would be grateful if you could enlighten me on this subject. I enjoy listening to you guys, and congratulations again on your 100th episode and to many more to come. Well, thanks, Jason. We're going to tackle that a little bit today because we're going to actually talk about computers from the past. Nifty. You know, it's actually it's, it's more than a bit before your time. It's actually 64 bits before your time. <laughs> oh, that, you, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Oh, hi, I upgraded your internet. But let's let's uh, let's 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 take a step in the wayback machine, shall we, Sherman? And um, uh, try and come back all the way to the like the earliest t- computational sort of engines, and then we'll work our way forward. I've got some stuff I can talk about uh, as far as the punch cards go because I, I came across a great uh, paper written by a former engineer at IBM who has. Uh, he kind of shares his experience of using punch cards for the first time. Excellent. And it's, it really is a great read. I'll just read a couple of uh, excerpts from it to kind of give you guys an idea. But before we do that, let's, um, let's, let's think back a bit. Now, computers really are number crunching machines. Mm-hmm. You know, everything you see and do on a computer is the result of different numbers being crunched in different ways. You've got you've got two different things going on. You've got a data stream coming in and you've got a set of instructions going on. The instructions tell the computer what to do to the data stream and then you get your result. I was wondering what uh what all those crumbs were on my desk. Now I know they're the crumbs the from crunched the numbers. crunched numbers. Yeah. Well. Yeah. This is going to be a hell of a show, guys. <laughs> I I would like to apologize on the behalf of Paulette. I mean, even I have my limits, folks. <laughs> all right, um, all so, right. so let's, let's go back to about 500 BC. All right. So that's back. That's what, that was a PC junior, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that was the first Apple. No, no, no. 500 BC. That's, it's well beyond the first Apple. Yeah. Did you get where I'm going with that? I, yep. Okay. Anyway, so 500 BC, that's when you start seeing counting boards. Mm-hmm. Show up. This was a way for people to keep track of numbers that were bigger than ten, because you know we have ten fingers, most of us anyway. Right. And uh, you know if you're lucky. And then um, eight eight fingers and two thumbs. 
All right, fine, fine. But if you somebody will to, write in. If you wanted to try it, exactly. If you wanted to track numbers bigger than that, then uh, you know you you had to store it in your head. Or if you were talking about really big numbers, you would want something to help you out. So that's where counting boards came in. A couple hundred years later, that kind of evolved into the abacus. And then we can skip ahead quite a bit. Okay, how far? Uh, I was going to go to 1679. You got something before that? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Hit me I, with I it. had uh, 1623, Ooh. which was uh, well, actually, there, it, it was before that because Leonardo da Vinci had actually drawn up plans for a calculator, a mechanical calculator. Sure. But uh, uh, William Schickard had uh, created the first one in 1623, where I actually built the thing, and oh, then wow. you know, yeah. and Blaise Pascal had the uh, Pascaline, which was a an arithmetic machine. And that was the first volume, you know, one that was – that first calculator was actually created in volume around 1642, 1644. He okay. actually built 50 of them. Cool. Uh, but I'm assuming that was all by hand. So we're not talking mass production here. Yeah, no. I, I don't think they had assembly lines back in 1640s. Yes, but you were uh, – I'm betting – based on your date, I'm betting you're thinking uh, that uh, – Guy who invented calculus. Sort yes, of. Gottfried Leibniz, who I would like to jump up and down upon his grave for inventing calculus. Well, you know, for those of you who are going to write us and tell us that he didn't invite, invent calculus, because he invented Isaac, a calculus. Well, he, he independently came up with calculus at the same time, around the same time as Isaac Newton. Which I always think so, is really cool. So, so yeah, anyway. this, it's, the, it's one of those one things where two different brilliant thinkers come up with the same sort of system um, – Independently, and it does happen. It's pretty neat stuff when it happens. But um, yeah, Newton is the one you should be yelling at, though. Right, Leibniz. Well, I'm gonna yell at Leibniz anyway. You can yell at both of them if you so want. So he also, uh, but because he also introduced binary mathematics. Ah, yes. And now binary mathematics, we're talking about using either the numbers. Now people are gonna write in because I'm calling it a number. Using either zero or one uh, as the, uh, your digits. And uh, that's what all of modern computing is based off of, are these binary digits or bits, as mm-hmm. they are also known. And uh, Leibniz was the guy who came up with this idea of using bits. Uh, now, it would be a while before anyone had come up with a practical purpose for them as far as computing goes, but that's where it got to start. Mm-hmm. What's the next date you wanted to throw out there? Because I'm going to, I, I want to, I've got a big list of dates here and I have another big gap. Okay. Uh, the, the next date that I wanted to bring up is 1804, 1805. Oh, yeah? Uh, yes. That, uh, that has nothing to do with computers, or does it? Because I'm guessing you're having to do with, uh, weaving. Yes. Ah, it's unbelievable. Joseph Marie Jacquard. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this is a guy who, um. Jacquard, I believe. Yes. Jacques. Jacques? <laughs> yes. Je ne sais pas, Francais bien malheureusement. All right. So, what did, At least you said that right. What did Joe Marie do? Well, Joe, Joe Marie, Marie, he was, um, he invented an automated loom. And you might say, okay, well, what does an automated loom have to do with computers? Well, he did it. He, he used a, a method that had already been used before, but he perfected it. It was a method where he used a, uh, punched cards to allow the needles of the loom to pass through to create specific patterns, weaving patterns. Um, so so sort of like you would see on a player piano. Right, yeah. Because that was something you might, I, I'm guessing that uh, those of you listening might have actually seen with your own eyes how the, the digits pop up and down with the, the holes in the paper. Right, so the, yeah, the, the, the holes in these cards were what allowed certain needles to go through at certain times to create these patterns in, in uh when he was weaving. And why would this be important? Well, it would allow you to create patterns that only a master weaver could really make 
uh, on his or her own and then automated in such a way that anyone running this loom could create the same pattern, which, by the way, tended to tick off the master weavers. A lot. Yeah, they actually burned quite a few of these automated looms. Didn't stop them, but, uh, but they, they definitely protested. And as a result, textiles in France, uh, the prices dropped quite a bit because it turned out there was a much cheaper way of producing these really nice weaves. Um, I'm surprised that you weren't the person to uh, drop the trivia fact here. But since you left the opening for me, I'm going to point out that they also, in addition to setting fire to these looms, like to drop wooden shoes in there. You know, the sabot, right. S-A-B-O-T, which gave rise to the term sabotage. And later would produce an awesome Beastie Boys song. <laughs> so... Thank you, Joe Marie. Uh, but yeah, the, getting back to it, the whole reason we're talking about is because the punched cards. Those, of course, come into play later on. So, uh, the next, um, the next date I have is 1821. Oh yeah? Yeah, that's when Babbage, uh, Charles Babbage first invented the idea of the difference engine. Yes. Uh, he would later go on in 1834 to come up with the analytical engine. Um, Neither of which he ever actually saw made. No, he made bits of them, but never created an entire working engine. Now, this was – Which is a shame. This was an incredible idea. Uh, and more so, the more we look back on it, the more we, we realize how incredible this machine would have been had he been able to create it at the time. Because it, it took into account many of the things that modern computers actually do. I mean, it would have done these things on a different scale, but that's – it's and on a mechanical scale, not an electrical scale, but it's, it was still really cool. And, and the idea here was that, um, you know, if, if he if he could have created it, it would have been the steam powered massive thing made out of brass and steel, and you could run computations through it. And um, it, it's just a shame that he never, you know, he he realized during his lifetime that he would never be able to actually build it. Well, he uh, he had a problem. There was no. The, the venture capitalist had not been invented yet. Right. He was relying on the government to, uh, to fund him and they basically figured out that rather than finding navigation for ships, which is what he said he wanted to do with this machine, he wanted to be able to, to, uh, to run calculations to help people travel over the sea more safely and efficiently. Um, basically he was an inventor who wanted to build better computational machines and they said, yeah, we're not giving you money for that, dude. Yeah. He, he wanted to rush they the singularity said, on. Uh, a lot earlier than we would have seen otherwise. Um, but despite the fact that no one built this machine uh, for for a couple hundred years, actually, because, um, well, a little less than 200, I guess, uh, because it it has been built uh, in London. Mm-hmm. Um, since a, then. What's that? Since then, in since modern then, times. Yes. yes, I think 2002 was when, when they built that, that model. So that was a long time between design and production. But uh, despite the fact that it was never built, it didn't stop people from writing programs for it. Well, you know, give a hobbyist a, a project. One of those would have been the Countess of Lovelace. Oh, yes. The you daughter actually, to I was Lord wondering. Byron. Yes, not that they ever met. No. and But uh, she created programs for Babbage's theoretical engine using the binary system. Hey. So there you go. You've got your first binary coded program for a computer that doesn't exist. And now we can say that about lots of different things in modern times too. <laughs> Build lots of programs for computers that can't run them yet. Well, you know, it's uh, with Babbage's machine finally being built in the 
to, you know, the 21st century, it's very much like every other machine that's being built in the 21st century. It was obsolete as soon as it was finished. Yes, exactly. So setting a precedent there. Skipping ahead a few more years, in 1850, you've got George Boole, who invented oh, yeah. Boolean logic. That provides the basis of, of computer logic um, and is far too complex for me to go into here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. What, what, what's the next thing you want to hit? I mean, there, I'm jumping ahead quite a bit from here otherwise. Yeah, it, it became obvious when I was doing the research for this that there's far too much to cover in our normal time frame. So I, I cut out some dates here and there. Okay, so what's the next thing you have? Um, I'm, I'm getting toward the... Uh, the early early 20th century okay. in my notes. Yeah, and that's pretty much where I'm at. Around uh, 1911, actually, when uh, a bunch of, you know, basically these machines that existed at this point were advanced calculators, if, mm. if that. I mean, mm. they were used for business purposes. And, um, you know, business calculators were pretty popular. They had, they had reason to, uh, to do these kinds of calculations. I mean, the, the census needed advanced math. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, they weren't really used for science. So you were just tabulating numbers. Um, well, in 1911, a bunch of, uh, business machine companies decided to get together and they created a new company called, um, this is a really catchy name, Computing Tabulating Recording Company. It was so catchy that they decided to change it in 1921 to International Business Machines. Hey, what are the initials of that? <laughs> IBM. I think I've heard that before. <laughs> Yes, it's a uh, it's a relatively small company, uh, right. but they were they were to go on to uh, be one of the first. Well, you know, this business machine manufacturing, but they uh, sort of set a precedent later on. Right. Well, well, before we get further in there, I had one date before that, 1906. Oh, 1906. That was when William DeForest invented the vacuum tube. Ah, yes. Which provided the basis for. What would eventually – the thing that would eventually replace the vacuum tube was the transistor. But that wasn't around yet, so we had these these machines using enormous vacuum tubes instead of tiny, relatively tiny transistors. And those are going to be important in some of the machines we're getting ready to talk about. Right. So um, 1928, that was when IBM adopted the 80-column punch card uh, uh, format. Oh, okay. The, so the 80 columns was your typical punch card. You were asking us, Jason, about the uh, punch cards. Um, this was the way that you could design programs for early computers. Now, when we're talking 1928, we're really talking about running specific um, functions. We're not really talking about programs yet. Uh, that's, that's kind of a little early for that. But the punched cards that IBM settled on, that became the standard for them. And a lot of the machines could only read the first 72 columns. So you'd say, well, what would you use the last eight columns for? A lot of programmers would use those columns in order to create a serial number so that you could keep the the punch cards in the correct order. Because anyone who has worked with a punched card uh, system would tell you if you drop those cards and they all fall out and get out of place, oh. yeah, that's <laughs> a bad thing. It's even worse than slides. Yeah. Because, you know, at least with slides, you can look at them and go, hey, that one goes here. So then we've got, uh, see, 1936, we have Alan Turing doing, uh, publishing his on computational numbers, which was also very important for theoretical computer principles. Um, and then, uh, I've got the, the first, what, what the United States anyway recognizes as the, the, um, the first electronic digital computer. Okay. Do you know what this one is? 
Um, I well, it sort of depends on which this, one you. This mean. is what a judge decided was the first one. So. Yeah, because because there is some debate about that. Exactly. So legally, in the yes. United States, anyway, the first computer, electronic digital computer, was invented by John Vincent Atanasoff and Clifford Berry, and it was called the ABC. Isn't that clever? Yes, for the Atanasoff Berry computer. Yeah. So that was uh that was. But in started in the late 1930s. It was completed in the early 1940s, and it wasn't until 1973 that a U.S. judge said that that was in fact the first digital electronic digital computer, as opposed to one that was um had a interesting acronym for a name. Yeah, ENIAC. Oh, that that one. was the that was the competing computer in the court system for right. the first electronic digital computer. Although they were sort of different. Yeah. Oh no, did. they were very different. So. So. All right, so that was 19, around 1937 to 1942. In 1938, you've got Conrad Zeus who builds his uh, Z1 calculating machine, which was the first programmable calculating machine. Some people call that the first computer. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got uh, you've got Turing himself working on a system a lo- that was directed by um, Dr. Tommy Flowers. Uh, it was a, a computer that no one outside of a certain group of people really knew about. It was called Colossus. Oh yes, Colossus. And that, that was a, it was so secret that, that there were no contemporary reports on Colossus. And all the documentation to show how to operate Colossus was destroyed by the end of uh, World War II. They didn't want anyone to find out how this machine worked. And it was used as a way of cracking codes and things like that. Yes, uh, I actually wrote a blog post about that in the Tech Stuff blog not terribly long ago, although you may not recognize it by its title. Um, somebody who uh, – they, they actually rebuilt Colossus in, uh, in the UK at Bletchley Park. Uh, a few years ago, and uh, there's a, uh, a musician who writes what they call chip tunes, which is using electronic equipment, basically gaming equipment mostly, uh, to write electronic music. Well, he actually went in and sampled sounds that Colossus made to make a record from it. And, uh, you know, I, I happened to hear this BBC podcast all about it, and I, I learned that Colossus actually didn't crack the codes itself. It was calculating the positions of the wheels on the German code machines. That's pretty so crazy. It, it, imagining that it took a room full of computer to calculate possible positions for the for the wheels, so that cryptographers could take that information and then use it to crack the codes. Right. And going, you know, I'm pretty sure uh, you know an iPhone could handle <laughs> that. Well, yeah, but at the time. But at the time, you know, it was so very very important. In 1943, you've got the Harvard Mark One digital sequence controlled computer, and in 1945, you have the first computer bug. Oh, yes. And it was a real bug. Yes, it was a moth. There was a moth inside the Harvard Mark I, and it touched a relay, and it made the computer fail. And thus, we get bug. Yes. We didn't, you know, not a glitch. It's a bug. Not a feature. It's not a feature. It's a bug. In 1947, that's when we finally have the invention of the transistor. Now, it's going to be a while before the transistors make their way into computers, but this is what eventually allows us to create computers that are not the size of your average gem. I mean, (laughs) these these old computers were enormous. They took up huge amounts of space. And this is all a, a very formative time in computers because it's a time when people are starting to rethink what computers could be used for. Um, in 1946, Arthur Burks, Herman Goldstein, and John von Neumann uh, came up with a paper called Preliminary Discussion of the Logical Design of Electronic Computing Instrument. Uh, wow. And Jonathan's looking at me like, 
why are you bringing this up? Well, it's because a lot of people consider this the, basically the, uh, document that started computer science because it was discussing things like how data and instructions should be stored together and how ins- instructions could be, uh, changed by other instructions, which is something that Conrad Zusa didn't believe. He right. said that that was a horrible, horrible thing and it shouldn't be allowed to happen. Otherwise, uh, dogs and cats living together, mass, mass hysteria. hysteria. Um, <laughs> But uh, actually, this is what allowed uh, advanced computer programming to to come about was people sort of started thinking about computers and how they could be used, you know, with these concepts. And as the 40s roll on and, and people start re- thinking about what computers really could be used to handle, uh, they they that was really the end of it being a computational machine and the beginning of it being used for, other, you know, other kinds of, of uses. Sure. So – Let's say, uh, go up to 1950. Okay. That's when Turing creates the ACE, which was the first programmable digital computer, the ACE. Mm-hmm. He also publishes the Turing test. So the uh, Turing test is, of course, the famous test of finding out, you know. Are you human or are you, are a, computer? you a computer? Right. If, if a computer is able to pass the Turing test, it means that it is able to fool a certain percentage of people into thinking it's another person. Mm-hmm. Turing tests are also what we use to to base the CAPTCHA system on. That's the system where if you have to, you know, when you're creating a profile on a on a site and you see that you have to put in a certain sequence of letters and like, numbers, like the jumbled up typewritten looking letters and numbers with a line through it. That's a CAPTCHA test, and that's yeah. designed so that it, it theoretically, anyway, is easy for humans to complete, but difficult for computers to complete. That's mm-hmm. not always the case. Because people, you know, there are hackers out there who are clever enough to make computers that are clever enough to pass it. And then, of course, you have to come up with a new test. But that's all based off the Turing test. Right. Uh, in 56, IBM built the first hard drive. It really? had, a, had a five megabyte capacity and it cost one million dollars. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My iPod has, I think, 80 gigabit, <laughs> gigabyte capacity. Somebody write in about that. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a lot less than a million. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then by 59, that's when you start seeing computers using transistors instead of vacuum tubes. So the Which transistor was, in, yeah, transistor was invented in 47. And then in 59, that's when you finally start seeing them show up in computers. Um, but you know, the ones with the vacuum tubes just sound better, man. I think you're thinking about something else. Okay. So 61, that's when you get the first uh, integrated circuits commercially produced. And in 63, this is uh, this one I like. I mean, you may have some more dates to fill in through here. Actually, I skipped ahead again because okay, it was just good. too much. I want to I want to read about this in more detail. Yeah, we would love to be able to do a series of these. Actually, yeah, that, okay. that should be a spoken word album right there. Yeah, is the early days of computing. We'll just we'll we'll pitch that. If you guys all write in and say we really want to hear that, then we get to do it. If you write in and say we really don't want to hear that, then I guess we'll move on to something else. But in 63, <laughs> Douglas Engelbart gets a patent. For the computer mouse. And in 64, oh, really? he builds it. And uh, so that was the, the first appearance of the computer mouse. Actually, uh, a few years later, um, he shows up and uh, shows a, a not just a, a computer mouse and a keyboard, but a graphic user interface, which kind of forms the basis of uh, some operating systems we know and love today. Yep, yep. Or I, at least know. I, I actually don't. <laughs> I actually don't know the answer to this. So I'm, I'm asking you this question. Is, okay. Was he involved with Xerox? Um, I believe he did uh, play a part in that. And we, in 1968, he, he introduced the mouse keyboard and Windows interface system. 
um, at the joint computer conference in San Francisco. It wasn't until, uh, let's see, um, I've got it written down here. Let me check my notes. Uh, 73 uh, was when Xerox developed Alto, which uh-huh. was the computer that had the graphics user interface. But then they decided, eh, there's no market for this. People aren't going to want a computer in their homes. You know, trash it. So I'm not sure if uh, Engelbart himself actually was involved in the in the development of Alto, but it was pretty clear that his inventions, at least, played a part in the production of Alto, well, which again never really went anywhere. Uh, <laughs> but it would eventually show up in other products, like I don't know, uh, Windows <laughs> and and Mac operating system. And well, it's uh, it's funny you would mention 1973 and how uh, people wouldn't be interested in that because that was an unintentional segue. Um, I noticed that uh, there was a a magazine called Radio Electronics that in 1973 published uh, information about something called the TV typewriter. Mm. It's basically a terminal you could use to uh, connect to a mainframe and uh, more or less a hobbyist project. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that get people who like to tinker, the kinds of people who might read Make magazine now. Uh, you know, they were reading Radio Electronics back then and, and they were saying, hmm, I could use that. And, uh, you know, in France, uh, right about the same time, uh, you know, there was the R2E made, uh, they had their own, that was the name of the company. They had their own, uh, microcomputer that used an Intel 8008 processor and they sold 500 of them in France. Of course, nobody heard of them in the United States. Right. Um, so in the States, it would be, it wouldn't be until about 1975 when Ed Roberts designs the Altair 8800. Yes, for a micro instrumentation telemetry systems. And what he, a nifty name for it. Why are the computer manufacturers? <laughs> Yeah. So, anyway. so he introduces this kit for three hundred and ninety-seven dollars. You can you can buy the kit and build your own personal computer, and it is wildly successful. Yes. within the computer world. Well, yeah. I mean, they were on the cover of uh, Popular Electronics. Saved right. the company. They were they were uh, basically a custom chip manufacturer, and they were they were tanking. Now, what's interesting is is back in nineteen seventy one. Uh, you uh, technically had the first personal computer. Uh, it was a, the Kenback One, mm-hmm. but that machine didn't really take off, and it wasn't called a personal computer. Actually, Ed Roberts was the one who, who kind of coined that phrase, mm-hmm. personal computer, and PC has been around ever since. Um, also, 1971, that was when Pong was invented. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Didn't have anything to play it on, but they had the, the game. Um, yeah, now, if you wanted to use the Altair, you had to program it in assembly code, and right. there were a bunch of switches on the front and a bunch of lights, and basically you'd flip switches and watch the output of the lights and... Uh, that's how know, babies that, are made. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> oh, sorry. Right. sorry. Uh, no, uh, you know, you, that was how you would get an output on the, on the machine. And, uh, you might say, who would care about something like that? Well, the homebrew computer club would care. There were a bunch of people in California who were interested in programming and uh, a couple guys named Steve were members of that club. Um, Steve I'm sure Wozniak. there were actually a lot of guys named well, Steve. Well, yeah. Steve, <laughs> Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, who, uh, later went on to actually were Atari employees at one point. Uh, but, uh, later went on to, f- uh, start Apple Computer. And, and, and in 1975, they were working on, they were starting to build their own computers within, uh, in a garage, which is the way almost every technology company in exactly. California started. Exactly. <laughs> and there were a couple guys, uh, out east too, who were looking at the Altair for programming. Um, Paul and, uh, and Bill. Bill, Billy, Billy, yes. Who? So uh, Billy Gates and Paul Allen. I assume you're talking about. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the Altair actually has a place in the uh, pantheons of computer history for both Apple 
and Microsoft. So yeah, Jobs and Wozniak, they're building computers in a garage. Gates and Allen, they are building basic compilers. Oh yeah. And uh, That's that, fun that stuff. was kind of laying the foundation of Microsoft. I'll talk about compilers in a second when I do a quick rundown of the punch card system. Okay. Um, and then in 1976, you have the Cray 1 supercomputer. Yes. Uh, actually, the Cray, uh, it's, it's named after, let's see, was it, was it Seymour Cray? Yes. yes. Seymour Cray, I was right. Not Robert Seymour Cray. Cray. And, uh, he's no, a guitar player. No, he's, uh, but, but Seymour Cray had actually developed another computer, the, the world's first su- supercomputer actually, way back in 1964. Um, and that was the CDC 6600. Mm-hmm. But the Cray 1, of course, left it in the dust. That was, you know, 12 years later. So it was a much more advanced computer, especially if you follow the, Logic of Gordon Moore, and it can leap tall buildings in a single bound. So that that's where I I cut off. I'm like, all right, seventy six. We've got that. By then, you've got the Apple computer coming out. Um, you've got the the genesis of Microsoft. We're really entering the modern era of computers. But um, that's where I was like, okay, I'm not going any further than seventy six. That could be a different podcast. Po- uh, computers of the modern era. Yeah, that's that's really the transition because right around then and through the early 1980s, IBM released the first. Uh, personal computer and, uh, you know, the other, the Windows system of using the graphical user interface and the mouse, you know, and the, uh, the Macintosh and the <clears throat> Amiga and the, uh, Atari yeah. ST and Windows and all the other computers that, that started out with that. And, uh, you know, that's sort of up to where we are today, more or less with refinements. Yep. Well, let me hit this punch cards thing really quickly. We're running kind of long on this podcast. No so, problem. Uh, let's uh, hit it. Obviously, we're both passionate about this historical stuff. Um, who knows? Maybe stuff you missed in history class will try and cover computing <laughs> at some point. And we'll be like, ha ha, beat you to it. So this I'm, I'm pulling this information from a paper called Programming with Punched Cards, which was written by Dale Fisk, who was an engineer at IBM. This was uh, talking about his, his experiences back in the early 70s. And if you wanted to write a program using punch cards, here's kind of how he lays it out. So writing a program began with a paper tablet of coding forms. Each page of the tablet had about 50 lines on it, and each line on the form would eventually be converted into a punched card and stowed away in a box with a bunch of other cards. So you would fill out one of these forms. You take it to a key punch operator, or if you knew how to use the key punch machine yourself, you'd use it yourself. You would encode each line into a card And then you would have a deck, which was called your source deck. Now, for programmers, this is the essentially the same as talking about source code. This is code that humans can easily interpret. Machines aren't very aren't good at that. They can't interpret source code, but people can. And it's very important because the next step is you'd feed the source code into a computer that would translate it into object code. You would get an object deck of cards. Now that process that's what you're putting your uh, your source code through a compiler that's what compilers do they translate from source code into object code so you're compiling your program now you have an object code you have an object deck this is what allows you to create to run a program on a computer and he talked about the process of running this object deck through a computer and then he got this big stack of paper and it essentially told him that everything went pear-shaped <laughs> shortly after the the first couple of cards went through and it turned out that his source code, uh, one of his source code cards uh, was missing a comma. So he had to go back and insert the comma, redo the punch card, replace the one that had been put in there, run the source deck through the compiler again, get a new object deck, try it again, 
Same mistake. So an- another mistake, rather. And this is the way they debugged programs in the early days. Like if you had not written it out properly or if you had key punched it in incorrectly, then your program wouldn't work and you would have to locate the problem and put build a new punch card or several new punch cards if, if it were, was a problem that, that spanned more than one and then run the object – or the, the source deck, rather, through the compiler again, get an object deck, run that through the computer and see if your program worked. This is why I pay people to write software for me. So yeah, and of course, keep in mind there are no monitors. Yeah, you're getting printed in right. information here. You know, you're not seeing it in in the sense of the way we see things on our computers today. So that kind of gives you the rundown on what it was like to do uh, to create a program on a punch card. Now, the paper that uh, Dale Fisk wrote it's about eighteen, nineteen pages long, and it's a great read. It's not written in in super technical language. A, a layperson could easily follow it. And so I highly recommend hunting that paper down. Again, it's called Programming with Punched Cards. So you can Google that and find the PDF online. Excellent. Now, um, that pretty much wraps up our, our discussion about computers from the past, which is a good thing because we're running over 30 minutes now. All right. So let's uh, wrap this up. Guys, okay. if you have anything you want to say to us, if you have any comments or corrections or compliments or suggestions, you can write us. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can learn all about these computing systems on our website, howstuffworks.com. And uh, hey, if you if you have technical questions uh, that you might need answers to very quickly, you might ask someone who uh, can do more tech support type answers because uh, not that we don't want to get those questions, but we might be less helpful and it might take us longer to get to them. Yeah, it turns out we have a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So if your computer is acting funny, we're probably not, not the, the best, best people to talk to. Uh, but we do appreciate your email. Absolutely. You guys are swell. So with that said, I guess uh, this wraps up another episode, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?